Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with Nicholas Christakis. Nicholas Christakis is a sociologist, a physician, and is the Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science at Yale University. He is also the author of a variety of books, including Apollo's Arrow and Blueprint. During our conversation, Nicholas talks about his experiences as a hospice doctor and what he has learned from working with the dying. His book, Blueprint, and our current evolutionary understanding of human nature and the scientific roots of love and friendship. He also discusses another topic about which he has written and which he has experienced, the madness of crowds and the danger of mobs. Nicholas is a polymath, a public intellectual, and an amazingly curious mind. His professional life has spanned many fascinating and important fields, and his life and his knowledge can help us all to be more self-aware, more conscious of our natures, and more rooted in reality. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Nicholas Christakis. Nicholas, this is such an honor for me to do this. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. It's wonderful to meet you. Welcome. Dan, thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. I was thinking about this in the last day of how I wanted to start this conversation. And I, you have had a hell of a life and you've been involved in so many different interesting you know, projects and fields. And the one subject I know is somewhat publicly known about your history, but I, I haven't heard you speak about it too much, is your time in hospice care. And we're going to talk about your book, Blueprint, which you, know, you mentioned your hospice work to some degree related to that book. But I'm fascinated by you know, end-of-life experiences. I know you're a sociologist and a physician. I'd love to get the story from you as to how you got into hospice care in the first place and what the real takeaways have been in your life from those experiences. Well, I mean, um, actually, thank you for asking about that topic. It's a, I used to talk a lot about this topic. I, I don't haven't in the last few years. I um I was a hospice doctor for quite a few years, taking care of people who were terminally ill. Mm -hmm. I was a hospice medical director in Chicago. I was an attending physician on the palliative medicine, palliative medicine service at Mass General Hospital. I, um, but I stopped seeing patients about 13 years ago uh, for various reasons. Uh, my first book was actually on end-of-life care. It was called Death Foretold. It's about how doctors prognosticate. Uh, and the origin story there is that... Um, when I was six years old, my parents had just returned to the United States from Greece, and my mother was uh, diagnosed with uh, Hodgkin's disease. She was uh, 25 at the time. Is that right? No, she was uh, 28 at the time. And uh, she she um, had a young family. Uh, me, I was the eldest biological child, and then there was my younger brother and then my youngest sister, uh, and then later, my mother adopted two other children. There were five of us in, in all. And um, my mother was diagnosed with what was then a deadly type of cancer. It was Hodgkin's disease. It was stage 4B, um, so-called nodular sclerosing type. And 
Uh, Vince DeVita had just invented a kind of chemotherapy uh, called MOP that uh, was effective at treating this disease, although this was already advanced uh, when she had it. Uh, and she was put on um, a couple of the drugs, two or three of the four drugs in that regimen, and miraculously had a, um, a seven-year remission. So my childhood was spent under a kind of sword of Damocles, you know, uh, wondering uh, would my mother die uh, and um, loving her deeply, and like all of us in the family, and, you know, a keenly, you know, thinking more about death than any seven to, uh, you know, 14-year-old should have to think. Then she had a recurrence when I was in early high school and then had a very rocky course and ultimately um, died when uh, she was 47 and I was 25. And uh, I was in medical school by that time. All three of my mother's sons became doctors, uh, which I don't think is a coincidence. Uh, They're well-known physicians. My older brother, Quinyan, is an endocrine surgeon at UCSF. And my younger brother, Dimitri, is a well-known pediatrician and um, in Seattle at the University of Washington. I'm sure our choice of careers had something to do with our mother's illness. And in medical school, I, I had gone to medical school. I had wanted actually originally to be a reconstructive surgeon and reattach severed extremities. And there's a whole story there as to why I didn't do that. But over the course of my initial part of my medical training, I became more and more aware of the abysmal care we give to the dying. And um, still to this day, we take in our society awful care of the dying. About about 50% of Americans die in pain. I mean, this is ridiculous. (laughs) 50% of Americans die in pain. And um, over half of Americans, when they die, lose all or most of their life savings in the course of that death, thereby impoverishing their families. Uh, and and that's for the first person to die. Then the second person to die in the family has no resources left. Uh, patients, there's just a lot of suffering in our wealthy, medically advanced nation. Needless suffering, and 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 people who are dying, you see, also are politically disempowered. I mean, you know, they can't band together to effectively advocate for their interests, right? So you you don't see marches of terminally ill people, you know, what do we want? Better terminal care. When do we want it? Now, right? I mean, you you don't see that kind of, you know, they're dying. They're letting go of the world. The last thing on their mind is political, public policy improvements, you know? And and so they are voiceless in many ways. And so these these observations, this clinical concern for the care of the dying, these moral compunctions, these political observations really animated me to um, to pursue hospice medicine as a specialty. So I, I trained in internal medicine. Uh, I went to Harvard Medical School in 1980. I'm sorry, in 1984, I started, I graduated in 89 and, um, and then trained afterwards at the University of Pennsylvania in medicine and then specialized in hospice care and, and did that clinically for about 10 or 15 years before I stop seeing patients. And uh and and I'm also convinced, so I I spoke of the the there were other, in addition to the clinical compunction and the moral and policy concerns, there were some pragmatic reasons I chose hospice care, one of which had to do with it's a specialty which was manageable from the point of view of someone whose primary identity was as a researcher. 
In other words, I only saw patients, let's say, 20% of the time. It's hard to be a surgeon and see patients 20% of the time, you know, but it's not hard to be a hospice doctor and, and restrict your practice to 20% of the time. And no doubt, I was motivated by a kind of, uh, psychologically by a kind of counterphobic, you know, I, 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 I ran to the phobic object, you know, like yeah, I had yeah. been afraid of death my whole childhood. And then, you know, what did I choose to do? I chose to surround, immerse myself in death and dying uh, in, in my thirties. Um, anyway, so that's, so I was a practicing hospice physician beginning in 1995 when I, um, went to the university of Chicago for my first appointment. And I, I, I took care of patients, primarily indigent, primarily African-American patients in the South side of Chicago. I did home visits, uh, on Saturdays and had other duties, uh, for a number of years. Yeah, there's a book that I have always been interested in and, and interested in potentially talking to the author. I think her name is Bonnie Ware. And the book, I, I believe, is called something like The Five Regrets of the Dying. And there's a quote in Blueprint where you talk about some of the consistencies that you notice in you know, humans and human nature at the end of their life. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to reflect upon that time to give your experience of what you recall from of what you learned from people who were in their last moments that has really stuck with you if anything comes to mind oh boy this is another unexpected and vast topic (laughs) i mean i um i um i had the privileged opportunity to talk to i don't know many hundreds, probably thousands of families uh, and people who were dying over the course of the years that I was a hospice doctor. And I was personally present at the death of surely over a hundred. I don't know how many, but you know, it was, it was not uncommon and um, of patients and spoke to many, many, many people over those years that I was clinically active were, you know, terminally ill. Um, it is the case that people with um, who are dying of solid tumors, uh, so that's about a third of decedents, so not, not, not necessarily people who are dying of cardio, cardiovascular causes of death or um, people who are dying from neurological causes of death, uh, like ALS, for example, but people who are stereotypically dying of cancer follow a pretty typical trajectory uh, to the end of their lives, uh, where their body weakens, when they take to their bed, when they they progressively let go. And uh, this was something my mother, when she was dying, spoke to me about, about how, and so it was unsurprising to me when I encountered it as a doctor about how Dying is about letting go. In fact, life is about letting go too, which is interesting. Yeah. Uh, and you know, the the dying let go of things. They have to. You know, they they let go of their bodily integrity. Their bodies start doing things they never did before. They have diarrhea. They can't walk. They break bones. The parts are in pain. You know, they just they suffer. Your body. You have to let go of your expectations, and they they let go of their um their occupations. They 
They let go of their um, social interactions. Uh, the last thing they let go of is their families. And then, then they let go of their life. And it is, it is a process that you can see uh, unfolding. And, um, and, is, and is often punctuated by certain other experiences. Like a lot of people near the end of life, not everyone, but many hospice doctors will tell you that people often engage in a kind of life review. So you'll see someone that's seriously ill that'll suddenly perk up a week or two before death and be desperately interested to tell you their life story. Hmm. I had one extraordinary experience. I was a visiting physician at Northwestern Hospital at the time. Their inpatient hospice unit was run by an astonishing doctor, a man by the name of Charles von Gunten. And um, for whatever reason, I happened to be in this patient's room when no one else was there. I mean, I was already a, a trained clinician. I just was visiting this facility to learn to be an even better doctor. And um, this old woman just perked up and wanted to tell me her life story. And I just sat there and listened. And um, and then she fell asleep and died. You know, I mean, it was just extraordinary. Um, and I was, you know, a stranger to her. I mean, I was a, I like to think of myself as a kind stranger, but, you know, I was still a stranger. This is not uncommon. So there are all these very moving, very human things that happen near the end of life. Um, some can be very disturbing. You know, for example, the death rattle is very common, but not, not in everyone has to do with the laxity of the muscles in the back of your throat. So as you lose the ability to maintain a muscle tone, your throat starts collapsing and, and then the secretions, you can't manage the secretions. There's some medicines we can give you for this to, but it's, they're not great. And, um, and, um, and the death rattle is, 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 is the thing. Uh, it's more distressing, I think, to the family than to the decedent. Mm. Um, so that's hard to to see to watch. Um, anyway, so there are all these like clinical things that happen that one can discuss, like lapsing into a coma and so on. I'm sort of hopscotching around the terminal trajectory, but but there is a kind of stereotypic path. And then even people who are not dying of solid tumors, people who are dying of other things, often have similar trajectories. Now, in terms of In terms of the concerns of the dying, I mean, there have been countless books written about this and all countless jokes. You know, nobody wishes they spend more time at the office, uh, you know, near the end of life. I don't know if I have anything special to pass along um, based on that. Yeah, I, I just I think people like yourself who have you know witnessed dozens of deaths and, you know, you just talked about the life story you heard immediately before this woman's passing yeah that maybe you have some you know you're you're kind of like a conduit from a perspective point of someone who is about to die to the rest of us and i, I guess maybe the best way to, to ask this is did do you feel like you changed in any way after oh, yes. those experiences like it prioritizing oh, yes. certain things or the way you thought about it? and what were those oh yes oh yes for sure and i think most of the doctors that i know that it's a little bit like being a pediatric oncologist or yeah. a or a burn unit nurse you know you you can't do this work without being transformed but for the better and for the worse you know it is um many people burn out 
It's difficult work. It's moving, very deeply moving work. It's morally fulfilling. Yeah. Uh, so they're good aspects. Um, and you know, it, it it's it's not humdrum. I mean, if you, I don't think. I suppose there could be people who are lacking in philosophical interests who are terrific hospice doctors, you know, maybe, maybe that actually could be helpful in some ways to, you know, not have any kind of philosophical, let alone theological, uh, you know, questions. Yeah. But I think most hospice doctors and and the contact with death fosters a kind of um, self-reflection, which if, if channeled uh, wisely, I think can be an opportunity for growth but it can also be um, quite a challenge. And, uh, you know, I, I think that one of the things that I certainly realized, and, and I'll tell the story in a minute, but one of the things I certainly realized is, uh, you know, the uh, the ephemeral nature of life. And yeah. uh, you can't you can't care for the dying and not realize the unfairness and the fleetingness of um, unfairness of death and the fleetingness of life. Um, I had a line in, in Death Foretold, which I copied, um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, one of my favorite, like many people's, one of my favorite authors. And I, I spoke about the raging authority of death, the raging authority of death. And that is, that is, that is, <laughs> death has a raging authority. Yeah. Um, you know, but I think, um, I think, um, one of the things that happened in my own clinical life, given the historical moment that I became a hospice doctor. So when I became a hospice doctor, I was 33 in 1995. And um, at the time, hospice principles were were still minimal and nascent in our country. Um, there wasn't yet a board of hospice and palliative medicine there were like i was the i was in the inaugural cohort of the 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 soros faculty scholars in the project on death in america so george soros had just funded this initiative to train people to take better care of the dying and i was one of like 15 people in that first cohort uh which was really the people that cohort are have gone on to illustrious careers uh so um uh in um I'm a physician by the name of Bill Breitbart, Diane Meyer, Sean Morrison, um, uh, many, uh, 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 Jim Tulski. I mean, all of these people, they're well-known names in hospice care. They were all part of my cohort. But anyway, and what you have to understand is back then, even how to use morphine, which is a miraculous drug, was not widely known. Physicians undertreated pain. Uh, they were worried that the pain would person would die if you gave them IV morphine. Uh, they weren't they weren't really concerned about people suffering at the end of life. DNR orders were kind of a new thing. Uh, there were, of course, many humane physicians, but many physicians also simply avoided talking to patients about like how to talk to people about um, how to break bad news. You know, it was like there was a fantastic book by a guy by the name of Buckman called How to Break Bad News. By the way, that's a fantastic book even if you're trying to break bad news to people you're firing. Yeah. I mean, it's like for even forget terminal illness situations, it's a really wise book, how to break bad news. And, um, and um, so all of these things, pain relief, relief of non-pain symptoms, 
talking to patients. These were all poorly done and uncommon when I began. So when I began practicing hospice medicine, there was a lot, there was a lot of low-hanging fruit, and it was very easy to make a difference. So I was like a young guy, I was 33. My typical patient was like a 70-year-old with a solid metastatic solid tumor who had who was dying, and there was a lot of chaos, medical and familial chaos around the patient. So I could go in to that situation, prescribe opioids. I mean, I could sit at the patient's bedside and push intravenous morphine and and relieve this the patient's pain. Yeah. And you you felt like a god. I mean, you just sat there and the patient went from anxious and fearful because they thought, oh my God, if I'm in this much pain, death will be worse, you know, and and unable to talk to their family and thrashing around because they were suffering and they had even they were in a hospital, keep in mind. They they just were not the the, the system wasn't designed to care for them. And then you give them a milligram, then another, then another. You give them three milligrams of ivory morphine. Within an hour, they they're joking with you, you know. And they and and it's it's extraordinary. And 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 then you can bring the family in, and they can say their goodbyes, and you can do all of this emotional and familial work. It's and then you can begin to address their other symptoms. You can bring the priest in. You know, they're worried about about afterlife. You know, you can begin to address. You know, you have the breathing room to to help the person have a dignified exit at the end of life. And um, so then you, then if you had some skill, some interpersonal skill, you could then help them to reconcile with two children, you know, that disagree about, you know, a very common scenario is the child that was more vicious to their parents is often the child that is less willing to let the parent die. Mm. And uh, so you have to really work through the family with that and so on. So you could do all of this work, and I was making a difference. And these patients, you see, I was 33, and I was, and they were much older, and 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 I could do something about it. But then what happened over the course of 10 or 15 years is a lot of these principles percolated out onto the wards. And in in fact, American hospitals became better at caring for the dying. Pain was added as a so-called fifth vital sign in addition to heart rate, temperature, respiratory rate, and blood pressure, the nurses would check how have you rate your pain every eight hours. And so the doctor had to do something about it. I mean, a patient's been five out of, you know, eight out of 10 pain for the last 24 hours. You guys haven't done anything. I got to do something about that number, you know, so they would start to like pay attention to it. All these changes took place mostly for the better. But DNR orders became more common. They were bureaucratized, but still like the culture began to change. And then what happened is, is the patients that I was asked to see as an expert hospice doctor changed. So instead of the easier to treat 70-year-old or 80-year-old dying of a solid tumor, I started seeing a 33-year-old woman with metastatic ovarian cancer had it, having something called a plexopathy. The tumor is invading the nerves of her of her spinal cord. And, and that kind of pain is called neuropathic pain. It's it's actually quite difficult to treat. And um, it's uncommon, but it's difficult to treat. And um, and she has three small children, and there's no justice in her death, or or meaning, or sense. And, and that's who, what my patient population became by the time I was in my, uh, you know, late 40s. And um, I got older, so my patients began to get younger than me. The system, the world around me changed, so the people that we were being consulted to care for were very different. 
and harder to make a difference for. And, and so that definitely had an effect on me. I mean, that definitely affected my, not my interest in being a good doctor, but my, the demands that the, that the, that the role uh, uh, put on me. Yeah. You said earlier that, you know, and I've heard this before in my life, the cliche that nobody at their deathbed wishes they had spent more time at the office. Yeah. If, if a young person is listening to this or, or not even necessarily a young person, just a person in general, and they, they are, are curious to get, you know, any advice that you think might be worth considering given your vast experience with these circumstances and these people who are, you know, knocking at death's door. What, what are those pieces of advice that you well, the thing is, pass along? Yeah, it's very difficult though, because, you know, people aren't different stages of life. You're not willing to hear the advice. You can't go to a 30 year old who's in the midst of building their career and tell them, don't bother. I mean, I'm not even sure that's good advice. Yeah. Um, so there's certain things we learn at different phases of life, which go with those phases. Now, this doesn't mean that older people shouldn't be telling younger people about their life experiences or offering advice, or nor is it to suggest that that advice being offered is false. It's just that I'm not sure that a 30-year-old can even hear this. Mm. Um, and it's it, it or even internalize the deep wisdom in some of these things you know like i um i mean this is a bit of a tangential story but i when i went to see uh, hamilton finally you know after <laughs> for years it took us to finally get in to see it and uh there's this line in hamilton i forgot who says it to who one of hamilton's mentors maybe it's aaron burr i can't remember or george washington i can't remember who it was but the listeners will know who it was tells Hamilton, smile more, talk less. That is such fantastic advice. When I heard that advice in my late 50s, I realized what good advice it was. I wish someone had given me that advice in my 20s. Nobody did. Or if they did, I didn't pay attention, just at least who I am. And uh, my point is, is that the, the manifest rectitude of that advice uh, fell on welcome ears to 55-year-old Nicholas, but it's unclear to me if it would have fallen on welcome ears to 35-year-old Nicholas. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a very good, very good point. There's a quote you have in your book, Blueprint, that I want to I want to read that is kind of... Yeah, yeah to be clear to listeners, Blueprint is a, a completely different topic. I mean, I mentioned some of my experience as a hospice doctor, but the book is about the evolutionary origins of a good society. It's a book about um, how natural selection has shaped not just the structure and function of our bodies, not just the structure and function of our minds, but how natural selection has also shaped the structure and function of our societies. So it's a book about the origins of friendship and cooperation and love and all these things we do among ourselves. And uh, it, I do mention occasionally things about grief and death and so on, uh, both for their scientific interest and given my own intellectual autobiography, but um, that's not what the book's about. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this this indi individual quote is related to what uh, we've been talking about, and and this is it. It's I have held the hands of countless dying people from all sorts of backgrounds, and I do not think I have met a single person who didn't share the exact same aspirations at the end of life. 
to make amends for mistakes, to be close to loved ones, to tell one story to someone who will listen, and to die free of pain. You just gave a, a a background of you know what the gist of the book is, what the real what the real focus is of the book, and it's obvious in me learning about your biography that you are an extraordinarily curious person because of the very different fields that you seem to have spent you know various parts of your life uh, focused on and. You gave a synopsis of what Blueprint is about, and it, it, to me, it, a lot of it is about human nature and our own goodness. What's the story for you about how how you got interested in the subjects in the book and began to write it itself? Well, the point of entry for the book for me was the work that we've been doing in my lab on the evolutionary origins of friendship. So the original working title of the book was Natural Born Friends, which eventually became just a chapter in Blueprint. A blueprint took like 10 years to write, uh, partly because I was writing it on weekends and evenings, uh, and also because the work in my lab was evolving. So, so my lab does my lab seeks to understand human human social interactions, face-to-face interactions, online interactions, the social psychology of that the biology of that. So part of what we do is we're trying to understand the deep evolutionary origins, for instance, of friendship. Mm. So m- many listeners are take for granted that they have friends, but, but why, why do we have friends? Other animals don't do that. I mean, we have sex with each other like other animals do, but other animals do not form long standing non-reproductive unions with unrelated conspecifics. That's a scientific way of saying have friends, yeah. you know, long-standing, uh, you know, non-reproductive unions with unrelated conspecifics is to have a friend. We do it. Certain other primates do it. Elephants do it. And certain cetacean species do it. And there's some other little wrinkles elsewhere in the animal kingdom, but that's the gist. And so the question is, why do we do this? Why do we have friends? Why did natural selection shape this phenotype in us? By the way, elephants independently evolved this capacity. These other social, intelligent social mammals. Uh, the last common ancestor we had with elephants is like 90 million years ago, and uh, that animal did not live socially. And but an- elephants have friends in in many ways similar to the way we do. Hmm. So, um, so, uh, so, so the point of entrance for me was that I had been doing a lot of work on social networks, on the structure and function of social networks, on why we humans. Uh, how things spread within networks, how ideas spread, how behaviors spread, how money spreads, how emotions spread, how the structure of the network ties is relevant to these spreading processes. So I had done a lot of this kind of science and then eventually became interested in the in the biology of this. You know, why, for example, when you are in the company of your friends, your heart rate goes down, you feel good, you have this kind of warm glow. We all know this. We all have experienced this. Um What's that about? And then in, in actually some of the latest research in my lab, we're, we're studying the human microbiome and we're studying how the microbiome spreads between connected individuals. So, for example, the, the commensal microbes that are inside you, um, they part of the explanation for which ones you have in your body depends on who, 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 who you shake hands with and who you live with and who you interact with. All of that's interesting science, too. That is new work we're doing in the lab. Anyway. 
the point is there's a biology of this, and I became very interested in this, in the evolutionary biology and genetics of friendship. Or, for example, one more point. Uh, very few people, I would think about 5% of unions begin with love at first sight. Hmm. I'm actually very interested in love at first sight. I had love at first sight with my wife. You don't need love at first sight to have a good marriage. And, and love at first sight does not mean you will necessarily have a good relationship. But it is a phenomenon, love at first sight. And there's an interesting biology to that. As, but even though most people haven't had love at first sight, or let's say at least requited love at first sight, kind of mutual love at first sight, almost everyone has had like at first sight, right? Where you just meet someone and you're like, I like this person, or I trust this person. And my and my question is, where does that come from? You know, why are we endowed with this capacity? It's clearly been a phenotype that's been shaped by natural selection. And so, so all of these were deeply interesting questions to me. Why we have friendships, who we pick as our friends, why we have this physiology that we have related to our social interactions, where we feel this warm glow, where we spread pathogens between each other, and on and on and on. And so I was going to write a book called Natural Born Friends. Actually, I was going to do it with a former colleague of mine, James Fowler. We started this like, I don't know, 15 years ago or something. And as I got deeper and deeper into the book, and then eventually the project transformed and it became an independent project of my own, um, I realized the topic was much broader. And it included a whole host of other social qualities in human beings, including love, for example, or cooperation with strangers. You know, you don't just cooperate with your friends, you cooperate with strangers. Or, or in-group uh, bias. You know, you like your own group, but you don't like other groups, and so on. And so that's how the book expanded and, and became more broadly about the origin of these good qualities like friendship and love and cooperation and teaching. You know, we teach each other things. That's a, a kind of altruism and kindness that we show to each other. And, uh, and, and then I, I came to realize that actually the book could serve as a very useful counterpoint to a much broader and longer standing conversation about the origins of evil, right? There's the, 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 the man on the street, the woman on the street is, there's a lot more conversation about violence and selfishness and, and mendacity than there is about the goodness of human beings. And so for all these reasons, I thought this would be a useful topic. And then, then it became a labor of love and I became obsessed and then finally it was finished in yep. in, uh, in 2019. All of this stuff is so, so damn interesting to me. And if, if we could sp spend a little bit of time on, you know, what you think you have learned about friendship specifically, right? I mean, you gave the you know scientific description of what exactly a friend is, but in, in your estimation with, you know, all the research you did and the knowledge you have about the subject, what's your best explanation for why friends exist in humans? Well, first of all, the importance of friendship has been long appreciated. Aristotle and Plato talk about friendship. Um, I can't remember if it was Thoreau. I think it was Thoreau, not Emerson, who said, you know, a friend is a miracle of nature. Um, if you have, if you're listening to me and you have friends, you should call them and, and nurture your friendships and uh, invest in them. You know, they are precious to you. And um, yes, you can, you can ignore your best friend and he or she will remain your best friend. But but not unending, you know, um, you know, you need to invest in friendships and um, and they're enormously valuable. Now, we 
there are a number of theories as to why they evolved. And one of the reasons they it is felt that they evolved is for incommensurate exchange. In other words, not there, there are many ways in which we help each other where where I you know I give you food, but you build a fire. Hmm. You know, or or I I um share information with you and uh and you um a year or two later you come console me when I'm grieving. You know, there, there are all these different things we do for our friends. And, and this institution of friendship, one of the theories is that it evolved. And this is uh, one of the theories of uh, two um, well-known anthropologists, uh, uh, Tubi and Cosmides in, uh, in California. Sure. Uh, and, 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 that, and that friendships also evolved, they argue correctly, in my view, to address something known as the banker's paradox. Now, the banker's paradox is the, the is the paradox that banks don't want to lend money to people who really need it right like if you if you're desperate for money and you go to the bank for a loan the bank's going to be very concerned that you're not going to be able to repay the loan so the bank wants to lend money to people who are not desperate for money who don't need a loan so how how do we resolve this you know how, how is the bank going to actually uh, do this and and the same thing happens the idea is with friendship there there may be circumstances in which at very low risk to yourself, you can provide life-saving help to a friend. And it's not a tit-for-tat exchange. You, you're making a small sacrifice. They're getting a big benefit. And, and given the kind of happenstance of life on our planet, especially for early hominids, where there could be unexpected setbacks or they could injure themselves. You know, imagine you're an early hominid and you're hunting big game and you're you're you break an extremity. You know, a, a person who liked you and valued you for who you were and was willing to bring you food or carry you for weeks until you healed because they loved you, because you were their friend, for nothing in exchange at the moment. There's nothing you can do for them at the moment. Your leg is broken. But in the hope that in the future you might reciprocate when they needed something. Yeah. Maybe completely different thing they would need. You don't, it's not the expectation. It's not that, okay, I broke my leg and you carry me for six weeks now. And three years from now, you'll break your leg and I'll carry you. No, that's not what's going to happen in three years. Something else is going to happen to you. Your spouse will die or, you know, you'll have some other calamity and I'll be there for you. So, so the argument is that that natural selection favored the emergence, the evolution of this institution, which is a non-reproductive institution. You know, how, why it's to my advantage to have a, a mate to reproduce with is a completely different topic. Hmm. Uh, why it's my advantage to have a friend, what the benefit of that is, why that benefit's important, and why the other thing about friendship is friendship is not a tit-for-tat relationship. In fact, if your friend says, you know, um, uh, let me pay for dinner, and then uh, and then you say the next day, you know, I need to pay you back for that dinner, and I'm going to take you out to dinner. That's not a mark of a real friendship, right? The, the whole mark of a real friendship is is the non expectation of immediate and symmetrical reciprocity, yeah, right? That you would take a risk for your friend, and that um, you don't expect immediate repayment. Now, of course, 
if your friend never repays you anything, then eventually you might feel exploited and that's not a real friendship either. But it's not a tit for tat. You, you know, you don't call up your friend, you say, I need a favor. And if you do this for me, then I will do something for you. Your friend would be, I mean, that's what you do in a transactional relationship, not with your friend, right? Yeah. So there's something very distinctive about friendship, uh, which was, you know, which is deeply explored uh, in, in the book. Yeah. I've heard you talk about friends and I've heard you talk about best friends. And specifically in you know, a clip I, I saw you give about best friends, you know, they end sometimes, right? They often also end true, after a yeah. period of time. And I'd be remiss yeah. if I had you and not ask you what what tends to be the circumstances or the reason for that transition away from that kind of a friendship. You know, I haven't done a lot of research on that, actually. I can tell you that in one analysis we did, the median duration of best friendships in adulthood is about 10 years, if memory serves, in the paper that yeah. we did. And um, you probably had a best friend in high school or maybe in college. They're still friends to you, let's say, but they're not necessarily your best friend anymore. Hmm. Although they might be. You know, it varies across individuals. And um, And this is the average duration. You know, some best friendships last for life. And some are shorter duration. Um, one of the interesting things is that most people, not everyone, unfortunately, but most people have a best friend, which is, a, which by the way, it's another interesting thing, you know, like, <laughs> why is that? Uh, and someone they can identify as a best friend. Now, again, there is a small fraction of people who unfortunately don't have that. And they may miss that or they may not want that. Some people, you know, are more solitary, are not interested in that kind of intimacy. But most people are, and most people do have a best friend. But uh, just like marriages or love has can have some duration, some time limit, friendships can too. And so there's some variation and there's some limit. I haven't studied what leads to rupture. Um, most of my anecdotal experience suggests that it's not any explicit, like, we're no longer best friends kind of statement. It's just a kind of lapsing or people get older and they're, they move. And I mean, a very typical thing that happens, of course, is they, they have kids. Like when you have kids, your social life is it's like a bomb goes off in your house. And, and unless your best friend also has kids exactly at the same time, that's a big stressful moment in best friendship. So you wonder when, when one person has children or gets married uh, and the other person doesn't, you know, that it puts a lot of stress on a friendship, but even assuming now when you survive that, you know, you may, grow apart in some ways. That doesn't mean you dislike the other person. It just means you don't have the same level of intimacy. This is why a few minutes ago, I was like saying, call your friends, you know, like maintain that level of intimacy and make an investment in it. Yeah. yeah. There was a, I remember last year, I think it was, there was an extremely popular Atlantic article titled, it's your friends who break your heart about, I think, those, I, you know, I, think I may have spoken to the author of that article. I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Possibly. And I think, I think it was about those transition points of, you know, life happening and and relationships that were once very intimate and friendship no longer being so you know to me in in you know learning about this book and and reading it the the two components to it that i think are just overwhelmingly of interest to people one we just talked about which is friendship and the other is love and you know you talked a little bit ago about love at first sight and you know it, it sounds like there's evidence that about you know, one out of 20 have this kind of phenomenon experience where that happens to them. 
And yes. I, I, by the way, that happens in, and it's requited. There, it's more often that you have love at first sight, and the other person has no clue that you're in love with them. You know, that is a more common experience. Although even that is not universal. You know, right. yeah, yeah. It, it's it's not it's not always met equally. Yeah. Um, the the I love uh, you know Lita Cosmides and the the David Buss and the people who David Buss has been on the show. I'm hoping to have a couple of EvPsych people on the show next year. It, to me, it's one of, if not the most interesting fields in academia, because I don't, I don't know how you could be interested in human nature and not eventually be led to this branch of investigation and research. Um, and you clearly are interested in this because of what we've already talked about during this conversation. What I know you study. What, what about love? What, what is the best ex- explanation, you know, in your mind as to? You know, both what love is and and why it exists in nature. Boy, that's a long topic as well, and I'm very tempted to say, you know, read the book. <laughs> you know, <laughs> just just. But um, to give you a bit of a flavor for some of the ideas there, I mean, it's interesting. You, you, first of all, it's worth it's a question worth asking because you could imagine our species simply having sex with each other and reproducing. You know. But we don't just do that. We form a sentimental attachment to the people we have sex with. Hmm. Why? Why do we do that? You know, why do we have these capacity for love? Of initially of children, and then eventually of sexual partners, and then if you become a holy man, uh, then of all of humanity. Yeah. Uh, and. Um, uh, so that's a conundrum. You know, why do we do that? Now, now we're not the only creatures that form strong, even lifelong attachments to the people we're mating with. The so-called monogamy uh, is um, is uh, not uncommon in the animal kingdom. Uh, the majority of birds engage in monogamous mating, and uh, the great majority of birds, and um, and many mammal species um, are monogamous. Um, so they they don't just have one-off little sexual interactions. They have a sustained interaction. We don't know mentally how those, what those animals are thinking. You know, we we don't just have a sustained sexual interaction with our mates. We also have a sentimental sense. You know, this loving sense of with our partners. And there's a number of theories as to how and why this evolved. Um, the the principal theory has to do with the benefits to our children. If you form a very strong attachment to your partner, uh, you will be better able to jointly rear your young uh, and raise them effectively and enhance, therefore, your so-called Darwinian fitness. Mm. Uh, and, you know, any genes that would emerge or any variants of genes that would emerge that enhanced your capacity to stick around and uh, and be with your partner uh and jointly rear your young would be better for your young. And those genes would be amplified. Those variants would be amplified. And that's one of the main theories. There's also a bunch of stuff that's theorized and there's some evidence for it that um, is almost comically sexist, uh, which is that one of the theories is that, um, that women females first evolved to um, love their offspring. And um, 
And there are all these hormonal changes. You know, when the baby suckles at the mother's breast, oxytocin is released to enhance milk production, but also it, it bonds to regions of the brain that enhance the attachment to this baby. So you think, oh, this is my baby. I really care about this baby. I mean, there are other babies and they may be cute and I may like them, but this is my baby and I'm really attached to this baby. That is, of course, a very powerful evolved uh, tendency. And um, and there's some theories that uh, what happened is, is that these capacities, which first evolved in the female members of our species to enhance the mother-child bond, eventually came to be applied to male partners. So the idea is, is that the, the, the love a woman feels for a man, and by the way, the book talks about homosexual unions and, and polygynous and polyandrous unions. I mean, right now we're just speaking about stereotypic and the most evolutionarily relevant uh, heterosexual unions. Uh, so that, what, that one of the theories is that uh, that that women uh, first that, that in our hominid past ancestors past these 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 capacities for attachment to offspring first arose and then eventually became available to be up they, they became a kind of cognitive apparatus this capacity for attachment you know snakes aren't attached to their offspring they lay eggs and they go away you know and then the offspring are born and slither out and do whatever they want uh, but we don't do that. We're, we, you know, we're attached to uh, them and there's a whole other biology there too, but obviously, but, but anyway, and that now this cognitive apparatus was present and available to be then also used for other objects of affection, like your mate. And the idea was, is that a, a woman, a female would signal to the mate that they had an attachment and thereby the mate, the, 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 the male could be confident that the offspring of this woman were his and not another male's. Because so basically what's happening is, is that the female is the theory is the female is trading love for so-called paternity certainty. In other words, yeah. if you're a, a male, you don't evolutionarily, it's disadvantageous for you to take care of offspring who are not yours. Yeah. And you can't be sure they're yours. And so the, the love arose. It is theorized in the female as a way of signaling. Of course, they're not some other man's children, because look at how much I love you. Right. This is the kind of idea. Weirdly, in men, in males of our species, the argument, the theory, a theory is, and as I said, there's some evidence for this theory, but it's a theory, is that originally what happened is males uh, uh, developed a cognitive apparatus for territorial attachment and that they um, they were uh, attached to patches of land. You know, this is my patch of land. Stay off. And uh, the capacity to di to discern a patch, to feel attached to a particular patch, to care, in other words, about a patch of land, uh, as opposed to not care. And that this had certain advantages, or, well, from a Darwinian point of view, and, and that there was this cognitive apparatus that was available then for use, eventually to be applied to females. So... Again, this is like I said, this is stereotypically very sexist. It's a theory. It's unclear how true this is, although there is some evidence for this. But but the the weird part, therefore, is is that is that when women that that men feel literal possession, they feel this kind of possessive desire for females, and that's what love is 
the origins of love for males are, and females feel this kind of like, oh, you're my baby, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, thing. So anyway, I'm talking too long about this, and uh, some of your listeners will listen to this and say, oh my God, this is all bunk, and how can you know? And and I and I get that, but um, and I'm and I'm not pushing this. I'm just illustrating the idea that there are there is there was some evolutionary path which is mostly obscure but nevertheless occurred that endowed us with this capacity for love and every human almost every human knows what I'm talking about about this feeling of love it's universal cross-culturally it follows a, a, a specific developmental phases um the objects of love are universally understood, um, you know, and um, it's it's a deeply important aspect of our common humanity, which the book explores. Yeah, a couple of things come to mind when just hearing that from you. One is that I, I remember hearing this a couple of years ago that, um, to your point about paternity certainty, it was something like if if there was a stepchild in a home the probability of child abuse on average goes up like a hundredfold. Not a hundred, but substantially, yes. It's noticeably so. And I, I had Joe Henrik on the show a month ago, who I I would bet you know or have read some of his stuff. I know Joe extremely well. He's a brilliant scholar. Dude, yes. he's absolutely brilliant. I mean, he was just dropping knowledge the whole time. And you know, one of the many incredibly interesting and insightful things I remember him mentioning was the adoption of monogamy, something like, you know, a few thousand years ago, a couple thousand years ago, I think by his lights via the Catholic Church, that that became oh, the Greeks, such, the, the Greeks, Greeks, Catholics. He's talking about historical monogamy. But anyway, yeah, go on. The, the, I think the general point was that by doing so, it was a um, unintentional, massive economic advantage to the West. Yes, because men who otherwise would not have had skin in the game for the their for posterity for their their children would, and were much more apt to care and to work and to be a part of the economic engine of the West. It, yes, a super interesting thing to think about I and consider. Yeah, I think he's right about that. I mean, he has a a set of theories about this, which I think are probably true, and he's been publishing a lot of good scientific evidence for them. I mean. When you speak about monogamy, you have to draw the distinction between sort of biologically driven and socially driven monogamy. So, yep. so it's, our primate past until about 300,000 years ago was almost certainly polygynous, one male, many females. And that's partly reflected in the ongoing uh, dis dissimilarity in, in body size between males and females, right? Males in our species are bigger than females. And, uh, and, um, and that was because we used to fight basically for access to females and females preferred bigger males. And so there was this complex male and female choice that took place that and competition that resulted in this gender asymmetry, the sexual asymmetry and body size till about 300,000 years ago. And then we adopted during the Pleistocene a kind of uh, a more monogamous uh, lifestyle, partly because it became possible for females to um, to uh, secure the resources they needed on their own. And so we were, went from being sort of polygamous, uh, uh, these are approximate figures and this is contested and and there, there were many exceptions, but this is just a kind of synoptic summary. So we were polygynous, let's say up until 300,000 years ago. Then we were sort of monogamous 
roughly, until about 10,000 years ago, uh, when we went through the agricultural revolution and we suddenly created the possibility of great social hierarchy and economic inequality, we invented cities, you know, we invented agricultures, agriculture, and uh, many or most civilizations again became polygynous. So one man, many women, there was like a, 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 you know, a big man, you know, king or whatever. Some of these kings had harems of hundreds of women, you know, yeah. and, and, and that of course meant that hundreds of men were denied any kind of opportunity to reproduce or have a sexual outlet or whatever, or heterosexual sex again, to be clear. And, uh, and so the argument is that we were then sort of polygynous in most of the great civilizations of the world, uh, until from about 10,000 years ago till about 2,000 years ago, where starting in Greece and then rapidly adopted by the Romans and then thereafter adopted by the Catholic Church, we um, became monogamous again. It became it became seen as immoral and bad for society for there to be polygyny. Again, there were exceptions. There were concubines. There were prostitutes. There was, you know, lots of infidelity of in men and women. I mean, it, it was a complicated story, but... The gist was we shifted, and unless we forget, um, monogamy, this worldwide revolution of monogamy, didn't reach all corners of the world and still hasn't. There are many, probably I think a billion people live still in countries where polygyny is practiced today. Yeah. Um, Indonesia, Nigeria, there are many countries in which um, it's common, and many big countries. So... Um, Anyway, so yeah, yeah. this monogamy, it sort of went back and forth and back and forth, and it was both biological and social. It's a very complicated story. And uh, Joe has done some of the best work in understanding its origin and its implications. Yeah, I think Joe said, and not by numbers, but by percentages of societies on Earth right now, I think he said it was still the majority of societies, not not in terms of numbers, but... Our polygynous. Our polygynous, yeah. Um, he would know. He would know that. It doesn't surprise me. But it's not the majority of people. It may be the majority right. of cultures. Yeah. Yeah. I I had Richard Reeves on, who wrote the book of Boys and Men about a month. Another ago. good book. Amazing book. Amazing guy. And he referenced. I think it's Roy Baumeister's work, where yes. he that he read that, you know, convinced him that only about half of men in history have reproduced, and virtually all women have. That you know, equality yeah. is much more of a female thing than a male thing, um, at least in terms of an evolutionary. Well, I, I, yes, although it's very important not to have a male-centric—not that you do, you don't—but a kind of male-centric vision on evolution, because let's not forget the women are choosing. Yeah. So there are people like Richard Prum or Herdy. I forgot Herdy's a very famous anthropologist. Right, this instant I'm blocking her name. Sarah, I think Sarah. is her first. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, who've made very cogent arguments about the important role of of females in shaping uh, the evolutionary trajectory of our species. And they, too, of course, are agents in our evolution. Definitely. I know we're getting close to the end of the conversation. And I, I want to say again how much of an honor this is to be able to do this with you. Um, there's one one other subject I wanted to bring up. And you start the book, the Blueprint book, with this story about your mother in a crowd in Greece. And yes. you touch on this story of the theme of mad, the madness of crowds in your work. And that is a story in which your lovely mother got seemingly whipped up into a frenzy in a crowd when you were a boy and began to turn on you momentarily. 
And I yeah. have to, you know, to me, so much of you got famous largely, I think, to many people because of a moment of that that was visible to everyone online of a crowd that turned against you at Yale for an email you had written about free speech and Halloween costumes. You know, you you also recently wrote a book about COVID, which we didn't even get a chance to talk to. Maybe some some more sometime in the future we could talk about it more specifically called Apollo's Arrow. This is something that, you know, they're disparate events, but you seem to have had various experiences that are, I would imagine, quite resonant to you of, of the madness of crowds. And I'd be remiss again if I didn't ask you about both that moment with you as with your mother in Greece and also about the madness of crowds at Yale and the madness of crowds of what we saw in, you know, the COVID environment. That's a huge subject that's probably warrants an entire conversation on its own. But I wanted to close on that just to give you an opportunity to speak about that theme in your own life. Well, first of all, I'd like to say a couple of things. First, I'd like to say that I like to think that I was a well-known scientist. I was <laughs> you a, a well-known yeah. scientist before 2015. I think I can fairly say that I was yeah. a well-known scientist before 2015. And, uh, and I uh, like to think I'm a well-known scientist now, and that's my principal identity. And so uh, there were, you know, there were some unexpected events in my life that took place in 2015. And, and uh, my wife and I did the best that we could do that we could keep more capable of in coping what was, you know, a very stressful and unexpected sequence of events. Uh, but those don't define me of course. and are, are not, in my judgment, the most interesting thing, certainly not the most interesting experience I've had in my life, um, nor would I hope would they be the most interesting things that others would see in the work that I've done or or what I've done. The first story you alluded to uh, was, in fact, a quite a, cent a central story in my life. So I was a 12-year-old boy. I was in uh, Greece for the summer uh, with my mother, who was an astonishing human being, um, very wise, very loving, fearless in the face of death, like a samurai warrior, fearless, like I rarely encountered in all my years of hospice care, other people who were quite like her. Mm. Um, and um, uh, that Greece was under a dictatorship at the time. This was the summer of 1974 in July. And the, and the junta finally fell. And throngs, I would say hundreds of thousands, millions of Greek citizens uh, swept into the streets to celebrate the, the fall of the junta and the imminent return of the uh, the former uh, prime minister of Greece, a man by the name of Konstantinos Karamanlis. And um, I was staying with my mother and my younger, actually all of us, the, the children and my mother were staying at my mother's father's house in downtown Athens that particular evening. And my mother wanted us to be a part of this historical event and witness this event. And she was very devoted to our education. And my mother sort of liked crowds. I think she felt sort of safe in crowds. And there's another concept we haven't talked about today called collective effervescence. It's a classic idea. You know, there, there's a sense in which many human beings love surrendering their individuality to a crowd. People who've been to a rave or to a concert, you can be transported. It's it's very moving. You People who've engaged in synchronous dancing with large numbers of people or who, who've been row, you know, who do crew or something. There's so many experiences that we have where we try to synchronize our physical 
and cognitive functions with other human beings. And that's another whole topic as to why we like doing that. But anyway, partly because my mother wanted us to experience this, partly because we were present and she was invested in our, in our having these life experiences, she took us out into the streets at like midnight on this particular evening. And we walked down Athens towards the Constitution Square, towards Syndigma Square in central Athens. And um, there's a big avenue there called Vasili Sophia's, the uh, Queen Queen Sophia Street Avenue, uh, which goes down. And and then there's uh, right near the uh, Syndigma Square, there's a uh, uh, the old uh, zoo was in central Athens back then. It still is actually there. And there's this stone wall that's like varies in height from four to eight feet high as it goes downhill. And it has these uh, steel um, uh, fence on, on top of the wall that, you know, the, the keeps the animals on the other side. Yeah. And uh, and we, we walked down and we were literally like two blocks from the center of Athens. And when the prime minister was going to return and huge crowds and they were they were they were screaming, you know, down with the dictators and uh, which was a, a kind of denouncement of the torture chambers and all of this stuff. And uh, and my mother kind of lifted me and my younger brother, Dimitri, up until this little stone wall. And we were, there was like a foot of stone. We had our backs pressed against the, the, the steel grates and uh, we were, feet were there. And we looked down and there was my mother, body on body, very sweaty, you know, very Greek, screaming and drama and all this stuff. And uh, and then the 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 crowd started yelling "Exo Americani," which means "Out with the Americans," because of course the American government had supported the junta stupidly. And um, and I remember being very worried that we would lose our mother, you know, that the crowd would move and we'd lose sight of her, and so on. That was my main worry. Until suddenly and inexplicably, this extraordinary woman who adored us points up at us. And says at me and my younger brother, and says, Nai Americani, there are the Americans, pointing to me and my younger brother, Dimitri. And as I write about in the book, because we were my my education was featured a lot of Greek mythology, I was quite familiar with the story of Medea, who, you know, chopped up her children and threw them overboard. <laughs> I wonder whether, you know, that crossed my mind. And when I was writing the book, I thought a lot about this experience. And my mother, unfortunately, had died. I couldn't check with her. So the only person I could check with was my brother, Dimitri. You know, did you remember this? What do you think she was thinking? And so on. And to make the long story short, the only explanation I can give for this crazy behavior was that my mother, to her credit, some listeners are going to think this is really grasping at straws. I know they're going to think that. But I really think this might be the explanation. My mother was trying to calm the crowd by telling them, oh, come on, not all Americans are bad. Look at these two boys here who are my children and who are clearly not bad. They're also Americans. You know, this is my explanation for my mother's, um, you know, really crazy uh, behavior. And, I, and, and you know, there have been other times in my life when I have been in crowds, and I have to say that I have never, unlike my mother, I have never... Um, like that experience you know i always i saw crowds as irrational as mob-like as surrendering reason as surrendering self-control as uh i've been scared of crowds you know and um 
scared of the way that they've been used by totalitarians of all stripes and scared of mob rule, certainly scared of mob justice. Um, so I've never liked crowds, which again, we talked earlier, we opened our conversation today by talking about how I became a hospice doctor as a kind of counterphobic response to death. Well, here I became a sociologist to study collective dynamics as a kind of counterphobic response to I don't like crowds. So let me just study that, you know. Uh, so, you know, so I've never liked crowds. So, you know, so and, and in fact, as you alluded to, many of my experiences with crowds have not been so great, you know, have not been so great. And frankly, many of the experiences in our country, you know, with this kind of mob whether it's uh, mob justice with, you know, the lynchings, the horrible lynchings of our history of lynchings of of black people in the South, you know, which, I mean, this is a, in movies and in our, we talk about this as awful, you know, or in, um, in, uh, in, in, in the, in the in January 6th insurrection, you know, the, the, the all these people, you know, the very weird phenomenon of these like sort of middle-class people with otherwise normal lives and families in this deluded sensibility going and then later in court saying, you know, I, I don't quite know why I did this crazy thing, you know, being led astray or people, people who, instead of choosing, for example, you alluded to COVID, the, the, the rise of misinformation and the, the way in which how you made decisions for yourself about how to deal with the COVID pandemic came to be seen through a political lens where you, were communicating your membership in a group by whether you wore a mask or got a vaccine is dumb. I mean, it's like that's like a dumb strategy, right? You're 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 letting this mob mentality, this kind of group, this desire to be a part of a group, affect these what should be, in my judgment, sort of technocratic decisions about what you do. So mostly the story of the action of mobs is not a good story in human beings. It is a part of our story. It's a part of what makes us human, unfortunately. But, but I don't think I don't think it's uh, it's a good thing. Let's just say, or or in your life, I, you know, I had Greg Lukianoff on two weeks. Oh ago, yeah, he's great. He's great, and and maybe we could close on this. You know, you you are right. I, your experiences with crowds. I'm I feel the same way about about crowds and the the I think justified fear of what a crowd can you know, inspire or motivate a, an otherwise normal piece, normal person to do. Maybe we can close on this. What, what in your experience is, is the way to walk back from that temptation? You know, is it, is it to, Oh, for an individual, for an individual. Yeah. Yeah. For an individual, it's definitely self-reflection, restraint, slow, slow the cycle length down, you know, uh, between decisions and actions. Hmm. Um, Build your character, mm. build your ability to see yourself as an as an individual capable of reason, capable of your own independent thought. Um, build your empathy with others, uh, you know, uh, foster in yourself the ability to recognize the unique individuality of other human beings. Mm. We are members of groups, but we're also individual people. I don't think it serves us well to mostly focus on how we're members of groups. I think it serves us better to see people as individual human beings, to be an individual yourself and to, and to see others as individuals and treat them as such. Yeah. So I think there are definitely steps that individuals can take. You know, I mean, there are other things you can do too. You can take martial arts, you can do meditative practice, 
you know, there are other tools available to human beings to regulate uh, temptation. And it is seductive to be part of a crowd, you know, like if you see all those, those accounts of witch burnings in medieval times, all those people, you know, one guy, there was the, there, there were these, these, these sadistic, you know, grand inquisitors who I'm sure derived tremendous satisfaction from burning these women. And those, you know, those, those people's names live in infamy, but they were also the crowds baying for death. The person 10 rows in, you know, just curious what it's like to see a human burn to death or, or just gleeful that it's not themselves. You know, this is, this is awful. I mean, we left this behind. This is one of the battles of the enlightenment candidly, and nobody should like this type of behavior. We all need to resist that uh, in ourselves. And um, it's very tempting. You know, it is it is a part of our humanity, unfortunately. But I think it's it's not a good part and uh, worth worth resisting. I read Sam Harris said this about you in reflecting upon that moment when you experienced the 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 passions and the that, you know, the the anger of a of a mob that you were imperturbable and that you had a saintly manner in yourself in the way that you conducted yourself and i have to agree i had heard about the story and never watched it myself until yesterday and it was just extremely impressive how you were able to maintain your calm and your respect your respectfulness and um i think we all could probably take a lesson from how you conducted yourself throughout that entire process well that's very um, nice very nice of you to say that was certainly very nice of sam uh to say yeah i think it's true i know i've taken up more of your time than we agreed to nicholas i want to say again thank you so much for doing this um you're a fascinating guy and i i've really enjoyed getting more familiar with your work and uh it's a big honor to be able to do this so thanks so much for coming on and thank you so much for having me and especially keeping all these other people who i admire that you've had on the on the podcast as well thank, thank you. you you got it my pleasure Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. 